0: France win the first game against New Zealand. I think that sets the tone. I think they're the best team in the world. I'm going
1: to go Ireland. I'm going to get off the fence once and for all. This is our best
0: chance. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers. On Off the Ball. And you welcome back to Off the Ball here on Talk. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy on your Sunday until 7. It's time now for the pay-per-view. We're delighted to be joined by the CEO of Tenio Ireland and the former Dublin Gaelic footballer Mick O'Keefe and the sports editor of the Irish Daily Mail, Orla McElroy. Mick and Orla, how are you today, this glorious Sunday? Good, thank you, yeah. Oh, good. Great to see you both. And there's a small matter, um, Mick, of Kilmocker Croaks in a All arden final and you're a former Kilmocker Crokes player and selector.
1: Yeah, um,
0: I'm really looking forward to it.
1: Um and I actually think it's going to be a cracking match. Um, The lazy analysis is, I think, you know, the big, monstrous, suburban club against the small, wee club from the north. But actually, I think you've got two really well-drilled teams. And I was only thinking about this morning, like Dublin, Dublin, GA, the football championship is an absolute swamp to come through. Um, And Kilmer could have come through two years on the bounce. Uh, Coming through the Derry championship is equally tough and coming through Ulster is equally tough. So... Um, the Glen have a, a sprinkle of star quality that even I'd say Kilcoo didn't have last year and a brilliant manager. Uh, and Kilmacud being Kilmacud have a, a really good team and lots of depth, lots of pace. So, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to I it. think it's going to be a brilliant game. Um, and obviously I'd love to see Croaks do it um, as a former player um, and as uh, involved in a bit of coaching there as well. I joined the club when I was a young fellow, and um very proud of being a, an, an alumni. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I think a lot of and looking at the names, this makes you feel old now, John. When you look at the names, you see the same names, the fellas you played with, but they're not actually the same fellas that are sons. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> father time is is catching up. But I, I just one one point on that is, you know, in the late eighties, Kilmauk was a you know a second or third tier club, and they won a first championship in ninety two, which was built on kind of hardened journeymen, most of them from the country, actually. In fact, or a lot of them from the country. But I think enlightened thinking and and forward thinking by lots of people in the club, a lot of investment in time um, and energy into the underage. And somebody said, I think 29 of the 30 that will tag played underage football for the club, um, which I think is huge testament to, even from a, from a Dublin perspective, that's, that's massive. The shame. mulchies,
0: is it, uh, Mick, that a, uh, come up to Dublin and set up?
1: Well, I think, I think most GA clubs in Dublin, bar some of the city clubs, were, were built on the back of, of country people who moved to Dublin. And, and Kilmacud. when I was there as a kid, was built on a lot of people who had come up from Wexford, hence the the colours of the club. And and Galway, um, you look at St. Bridget's and Castlenock would have been a lot of people from Cavan and and Meath would have been, would have settled. And you look at the map of Dublin and you see what part of the country you come into Dublin, and oftentimes those people are the people who set up those clubs. A lot of Leash people involved in Mary's a for argument's sake, and, and go on and on. Um, and I and I think Kilmacud was built on the back of of a lot of country people who settled in the area. Um, Kilmock Hood was at the time the poor relation of the area um, as you, you well know like you know soccer was massive in the borough and, and around that area You Joey's and Ballybrack and a lot of big soccer clubs and rugby was dominant in, in, in that part of Dublin and, and, and still is quite powerful in that part of Dublin so when I was playing Kilmacud was very much the, the poor cousin of of the sports in the area. Um, and now it's, when well, the better way of saying it's, it's sexy and it's popular to play GA of uh, Gaelic football and hurling. Um, Kilmacud only started getting players on the Dublin team in a regular way, kind of from the 2000s on. Um, and that's had a massive impact. And Kilmacud's problem now is not. Um, popularity. It's trying to actually cater for the demands, um, which is different. To you know, we 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 referenced a couple of articles in the Irish Times during the week. Yeah, country clubs struggling for numbers. McCudd's problem is struggling for space. Um, but today, you know, I I, I I think, and I see it um, as the work that was built on on the back of those people who set up the club who put all that time and effort in when the club was an intermediate team in the late eighties, early you know, early nineties until they had until they had the breakthrough. Um and the sons of some of those fellas are, are playing today and, and the managers, a fellow I played with, Robbie Brennan and we came onto the panel together. And these are guys who who still remember the days when Kim wasn't successful. So um I don't think there'd be any complacency on that front and obviously losing so heartbreakingly last year in, in the final. Yeah. Um it's such a catastrophe, I suppose, in some respects. Um, but I do have this niggly fear that the Glen are a really good team. Um And I think it's going to be a cracking game. Paul Mannion, will he talk is the other thing, you know?
0: Yeah, Ashley O'Reilly was saying that it's probably likely that he will. Um, mm. Orla, uh, are you affiliated to any club or anything?
2: Uh, Eadstown, small country club in Calair. Yeah, yeah, small little country club. So we're not, um the girls are the better side in Eadstown, actually. They're the Calair Champions, right? Um, so, uh, Nase is my hometown, so they're obviously pretty good dual club. They've yeah, done they've great. They've had lately. a good couple of years, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. But on both sides, on yeah. hurling and on football, they've yeah. done really well. Yeah, big time.
0: Yeah. And uh, what are the challenges facing your club, or the or the opportunities at the moment?
2: For Eadstown, yeah. like it's, I mean, it's it's always going to be numbers for a small club like yes. that. You know, um, you'll get a couple of, uh, you'll always have. They, in fairness, they do well. They're usually represented. You know, there will be somebody in and around the Kildare panel. Emma Bolton for years was
0: good man. Emma, good lad. Yeah,
2: good representative. So um, yeah,
1: very good. And did they merge at underage? Did yeah. they did they merge like a lot of clubs in Dublin? Are merging? Did Kaleida, was that a, a kind of a combination club at a kill in Eadstown?
2: Uh could have I mean, in some competition i'm not sure at the moment i think they're playing under their own okay. yeah
0: yeah so a lot of writing about the club and obviously about last week as well the uh, indiscipline but i suppose the, the, from a positive side there's some good articles on dunloy um on last weekend celebrations we'll kick off the the review there but i suppose what, what we'll do is we'll go through the back pages first as well uh folks before we uh, we get into the meat and, and drink of the papers so the uh Sunday Times um, Sports section says, perfect finish. Leinster complete Champions Cup pool stage with 100% winning record. And Hodge annoyed by links to England. So Joe Hodge will be an Irish player. He's pretty adamant about that in an interview with Paul Rowan in the Sunday Times Sports. Lampard on the brink as Everton lose to West Ham. We also have the Sunday Independent, Fergie Time. Uh, Evan to the rescue for Brighton brilliant stuff Evan Ferguson scoring yet again came off the bench in a 2-all draw at Leicester has to be in that Irish team against France if he's fit and playing on a regular basis uh, Cullen knows Leinster need to up their game final quarter fl- final flourish against uh, Racine Papers over the cracks well they're into the last 16 not quarterfinals, finals but uh, firing blanks Liverpool missing big guns and Eamon Sweeney football's toxic culture which we'll get to that's the Sunday Independent the Sun don't sack Frank says David Moyes please don't sack Frank Lampard uh, Arsenal Man United squeaky gun time Arteta inspired by the brutal honesty of Ferguson Michael Arteta has revealed how Alex Ferguson helped fire Arsenal's title charge and Evan is an ace on earth Evan Ferguson scoring yet again for Brighton get your headline riders out <laughs> Fergie time Ireland star rescues seagulls to add to the growing reputation says the uh, Irish Daily Mail on Sunday United lineup gunners as Ten Haag issues title challenge and Klopp insists Liverpool are showing signs of progress of course he would Um, Harry Up record chasing Kane showing signs that he's up for a 100 million move to Old Trafford of course he is who wouldn't want to leave Spurs (laughs) Uh, Ten Hag let's bash the Gunners that's the Sunday World and then we have the Sunday Mirror to finish Bowen Bowen gone Lamps faces the axe as Jared twists Knife into clueless Toffees Uh, Knack deal snag Uh, Man United want to tie Alejandro Garnacho to the longest contract ever offered by the club Uh, And drone goal, Southampton and Aston Villa players were forced off the pitch for almost Mm -hmm. 10 minutes due to a drone at St. Mary's. Weird things happening in the Premier League sometimes. Um, So the club, where do you want to start with the the papers and what you've seen in the papers today in terms of good riding?
2: Well, there's a couple of good pieces in the Sunday Times. There's a small piece with Mick's own Comico Croaks where he actually gets mentioned talking about Rory O'Carroll, which is a a nice piece. It's more of a, a profile than an interview and it 's always nice to get a flavor of the person and uh, he seems like a kind of an interesting chap who 's kind of uh in one way the road less traveled, but in another way for him he 's done plenty of traveling and he's he taken time out to go to Thailand and he relocated to New Zealand at one point and he seems like a very interesting guy and he 's obviously going to be uh, he'll have a central role for colmak today yeah, like no, he
1: he's a he 's a brilliant fellow and and I think um you know, uh, he, he's one of those unusual characters where, you know, he kind of did, just does what, I suppose, he's a bit of a free spirit. So, you know, at the peak of his intercounty career, he up sticks when Dublin are about to embark on their six in a row, um, went off. Kind of a socially kind of minded, conscious kind of fella too. I I came across him um, through a very small piece of work, um uh, but he Rory was heavily involved with Brother Kevin in the Caption Day Centre. Very much kind of, you know, in that kind of social... Uh, social work type mind um, and he went off and dedicated himself to to work like that for a few years came back I think he's reinvented himself as a footballer as well Um, he's the kind of fella you'd always want in your team you know You'd look at him in training sometimes and you think, God, you nearly fancy your chances here and then you go out and he's he's not a he's always good on the big day. Love to wrestle, you know, big forwards the Kieran Don or Sean Kavanas and stuff of this world and uh I said first man and on every every team sheet and a real like, you know, tough dog for the for the old road and um he is the heartbeat of that. Team, and I think he's kind of guy's the heartbeat of the club, brilliant hurler as well, tough as nails. Um, and, and you know, he'd be the fellow that, well, you know, if Kilmacud are going to win today, he needs to have a big game as well.
2: Yeah, interesting. It talks about his, his dual status and how he was involved with Dublin hurlers as well as footballers. And His brother hurled with
1: um, Ross, would have hurled for, for Dublin also won. I think one might have won all Ireland with Kilmacud as a footballer, too. Um, another tough. Fella as well. But um, yeah, no, Rory's just a really genuine fella, wicked sense of humour, as I said. And, uh, you know, when you've got all these lovely footballers around you, you need a couple of guys who yeah. don't, aren't afraid to get, get stuck in.
2: Do the heavy lifting. It, it's nice to get a piece like that, a profile where you learn a bit more about a player. You know? Yeah. It, it, that's kind of what well, draws that's the whole the point, rather than
0: being a preview of the match. Exactly. Um, the stuff about Dunloy is good as well in the Sunday Times. Michael Foley I thought was quite good today.
2: Yeah. Talking about uh, he spoke to Seamus Elliott and the story of the club and the the struggles they've had down the years and talks about, you know, difficulties that they had to overcome and uh, mentions how um, they're among Hurling's Her- most resilient outposts, a nationalist town on the buckle of Northern Ireland's Pre- Presbyterian Bible Belt whose hurlers bred their own strain of unbending unbend- self-belief to break the chains and become a national force. It's their fifth All-Ireland final. That's more than Blackrock. James Stevens and St Finbar's one lesson burr and matches the total accumulated by all the clubs in Tipperary, which is quite a feat. It's a, good, it's a really
1: good article, I think. And, mm. and in fairness to, to Michael Foley, like sometimes you read these articles about um, Ulster hurling teams that make finals and you feel like you've read it before a little bit, you know, um, Nationalist Outpost, hurling, the struggle to promote hurling in the north. But um, I actually think he's done it really well and it's part of the identity of Dunloy. Um, they've always produced good teams. Back in the 90s they produced teams as well. Um, they're really rank outsiders today because Ballyhale are just absolutely glittered with you know um, and uh, with with stardust. But um, it's worth a read um, because it is part of who they are. Um, and you do have to accept that there are times when it was difficult to promote hurling in the north particularly at the height of the Troubles. And you are a distant outpost too, where he talks about bringing up Davy Fitz and uh, Liam Griffin, and you know, trying to connect with that hurling community where you couldn't be further from mm. the heart of hurling when you're up in up in up in the glens of of, of Antrim. So, um well worth the read. Michael Foley again writes beautifully on it.
2: Yeah, and then Ballyhaler discussed Dermot Crow has a piece in the Sunday Indo talking about Hale and. Their history in the competition. He starts off by pointing out how, uh, in 2003, Burr won a fourth Tommy Moore Cup to become the most successful team in the competition's history, and by now you've got Ballyhale, and you know the 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 rate at which they've accumulated all Ireland's at this stage, um, and it's a it's an interesting read talking about them. Also talks about uh, how there's all these younger players coming through in Ballyhale, and they have a crop coming up who are age 15 and 16. Which people would be really delighted to hear will be saying plenty God, yeah. more about it. Huh? <laughs> yeah, well, that's but, a good it big, d-
1: there was the whole Dave Billings, the, the um, now deceased um, UCD, Vincent Dublin legend. You know, we were talking about football one day and he was saying about Vincent's and their mantra was, you know, when you're at your peak, win as many as you can because don't always get the chance to bounce back so Ballyhale are really stepping up to that they're winning everything all around them because it doesn't last forever I know they've got young fellas coming through but they really have been unbelievably good
0: um, and red hot favourites today understandably yeah Yeah. absolutely And, and Glenn as well um, profile in some of the papers and I thought what was interesting as well was Dermot Crow was kind of recapping last week and uh, just the communities that are touched by uh, winning club matches whether it's uh, Club All-Ireland at intermediate or junior level or senior level Rathmore were there for bonfires blazing for the local heroes winners of the All-Ireland Intermediate title after a tough battle with Galbally and um, Uh, they went through Kerry they didn't go through Cork which was interesting on the way home Um, and also with the Cliffords and Fossa we left Dublin at about 12 we had a lovely homecoming arriving in the snow at half 6 as Dermot Clifford the club chairman and father of David and Pawdy we went back to our sponsors the Golden Nugget Pub we watched the match again on the Tuesday evening and last Wednesday we met up with the Rathmore boys the two teams together both clubs in the East Kerry region the two clubs have a lot in common uh, really and also John Toomey and Monoline's Hurlers success in the Intermediate All-Ireland the next day's assembly in the clubhouse offer the chance to connect with their own people. The sight of fans is a joy to behold, says to me. I've never seen so many people out in the area to welcome anyone or anything in monoline in my life. So uh, in terms of the positives of the club, it's all about belonging, community, a sense of purpose, a sense of a journey, a sense of togetherness, a sense of identity. And that's, I think, the best part of it yeah. uh, that we're seeing, whoever the four teams are in, say, the senior finals today, for example. I think, um, I think
1: that's a really nice piece. And uh, I did like that... Uh, piece about the, the, the Kerry team coming home the way they came because it was more crossroads and more opportunities for bonfires <laughs> so, but um, somebody touches on at the end I think it's the Rat, the, the Rathmore uh, player about there's something more primal about club um, the club is really local and there was a time 20 years ago where I think the GA were looking at the club finals has been you know a fifty sixty thousand 60,000 affair um, there'll be probably 25,000, 30,000 Park today but I think that's where the club is at It's it's local um, and it's really local, and that's what you want. Um, and this stuff here, I think this this piece about the teams coming home drives that home. Um, there's some lovely little nuggets there about the teams that came home, both winning and losing teams. Um, they to actually touch on one of the teams that lost uh, a final um, as well. Um, and it's really, really local. I know it sounds cliche and it sounds like a bit of an ad for the club, the club champions, but actually that is the reality of it. And unless you're close to it or part of it. Um, it does maybe pass you by a little bit, um, but I think that's where it's at. And one thing just to, to add to that is the GA has got a lot of criticism for um, leaving August wide open to you know other sports because they've kind of brought the championship back. I think putting the club championships into January has actually been a really good thing. Why? I think because it gives it its own window. I think you know outside of the pre the season tournaments um, and the Sigursons, I think it stands alone and stand, and it also is going away towards the death by thousand cuts of actually tidying up the the GA calendar and I wouldn't be surprised to see and I would welcome the the GA um, football and hurling finals first week of December uh, or second week of December and be the curtain raiser for the year for the GA I think we're not that far away from something like that um, and give it its own sense of prominence putting it in March where you've got a club final, Leinster in the first week of December, a semi final in the middle of Feb, which used to be, and a final in the middle of March, it was bananas. You had seasons that were going on for two years at times. Mm. So, I, I think it's much better. I think it gives it its own standalone window, um, and it gives it a chance to get more promotion. I think the coverage today is very extensive, and you mightn't have got that if it was in the middle of March.
0: The other side of it is the whole issue of last weekend, Fossa and Stuart and Harps and discipline. And there's a lot of writing about it today from your own paper, Shane McGrath, or from Eamon Sweeney, the back of the uh, Sunday Independent, from Joe Brodie, from Mm. um, lots of different writers. uh, Because it's uh, it's something that, uh, to me, left a sour taste, I have to say.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, it's not, it's not the kind of scenes you want to see. Like, I, I watched the latter stages of that match and then, you know, you have so many send off and whatever going on at the end. It's, it's not... The clubs have been given this platform and, you know, as Shane McGrath speaks about, they've been given this standalone day, brought to Croke Park, and it's, you know, they've, they've got a big opportunity, but you don't want to see that happening on the biggest day. And Eamon Sweeney on the back page of the Sunday Indo is talking about um, how... You know, you don't want to see that, that sport shouldn't damage the health of its players, and that's health in many different ways. It could be physical or mental or, you know, whatever type of health you're talking about, that uh, this sort of alpha male behaviour of slagging and, and um, you know, sledging going on on a pitch or the perceived manliness of the toughness is not doing any good to anybody and it doesn't do any good to teams and it's not a good look for anybody for that sort of thing to be going on at the pitch. So, you know, it's how, it's. I mean, it's a, an ongoing issue and it's something that comes up regularly is how do you stamp this out and how do you do you cut it out of GA? Because you, nobody wants to see it going on. That's not what you want to see. You know, we all chun- tuned into that match to look at David Clifford and yeah. see his brilliance and see him hope, hopefully crowning a wonderful year that he had but you know it's all blighted by what happens at the end
1: yeah I think uh, th- your your takeaway from last weekend unfortunately was that the games were niggly and there was an, an undercurrent of of just a bit of nastiness in the games and in many ways they were the most junior football of games and at least jun- like, you like this absolute brilliance of talents big crowds lots of lots of publicity and interest because of the players that were playing on all the teams um and they both descended into ugliness and um I don't know why it was the those particular ones there was a bit of a lazy kind of it was a Throne team's fault, you know, it also always takes two to tango and these things and Brawly, you know, in very unbrawly-esque uh way, unless I'm, mis- I'm misreading it and it's an ironic piece, has come out full guns blazing, defending the throne uh teams and feels that they're a little bit victimised. I read as well, I don't know if you saw during the week that sports shopping Drone had have to apologise for selling Fossa jerseys. <laughs> it was, they they advertise it was Begley Sports or something. Apologise to who? They so <laughs> they they advertised that they were selling Fossa jerseys because obviously it's a big interest in the Fossa kid after the match in Clifford, and they had to they had to stop selling them and apologise
0: to the local. <laughs> this is g- like this is the movement of a Ga into a Messi Ronaldo sphere now. The words yeah. beyond county. By the way, it's uh, Ali Hatcher marks one four Dunloy one three in the uh, uh, hurling final. Seventeen minutes on the watch, at Krog Park one four apiece now. By the way, lovely. Um, I know myself, like, if I do anything wrong and I try not to go offside many times in my life, I always ask myself, um, is that the person I want to be? And, like, do do GA people in football want to ask themselves, managers, players, coaches, is this what we want to be in terms of the spectacle we're uh, showcasing for people? Because it's just so much water battery with it. And it's, like, it's not the... First time it's happened and, you know, I was looking at, was it Derry Tresk and Drummond Pierce's like over a decade ago and like a Mig Millie in the the stand and um, this whole kind of uh, almost protection of the concept, well, it's a physical game and these things happen and everything. And uh, it's just a bit unedifying and like when you're talking about the beauty of sport, whether it's Harrington's determination today or Katie Taylor's um, integrity or the skill of Messi, um, that's the beauty of sport and Gaelic football should be... um, highlighting and lauding the beauty of sean o'shea's free kick or clifford's uh, uh you know mercurial brilliance or anything that the dubs are produced under jim gavin and not this because it just seems to be a groundhog day for the uh, gaelic football scene and i don't know what the solutions are to it but uh there's a cultural thing that i think only the people can themselves can solve we can't solve it by saying outside the door oh you guys need to clear up your act
2: no, it is a culture. Like there's definitely a cultural thing that needs to change. So where do you you know, where does that start? But there's there's probably many answers to it. There's no one answer that's going to solve it. You know, there's many, many answers, like whether it's do you look at harsher sanctions. Like there was so those sending off at the end of the FOSSA game, like there was a particularly nasty elbow. And that was a straight red. But a straight red results in a one game ban, and that game is competition specific. So you know, if that's a player who plays county, they don't miss a, miss a county game. They're going to miss their junior club game the next time around. They're not, you know, so is that really a deterrent? Is that enough of a deterrent to stop people doing that kind of thing on the pitch? You know.
1: Well, you look at the you know, I think we were here, John, and we had this conversation after maybe it was our Tyrone in the league or something. I can't remember what game it was. And we were talking about this just needs to stop. Um... And we've like talked about a top to bottom thing where it's education for kids and parents at seven and eight years of age, and it's this kind of thing of you know you can't get your lawyers in and go to the C C C C C C C and uh, get your man off on a technicality because the referees forgot to write his name in Irish or something, right? And you know I actually think Shane McGrath has hit the nail in the head here, and it's so easy and so logical. But it's cultural, right? And he says, um, one behavioural scientist told this newspaper that severe, consistent, applied sanctions are a proven way of addressing ill-discipline in sport. Like, you know, we've got clear sanctions, clear rules, you know, why can't they be applied? If they're applied consistently, it stops this kind of behaviour. Um, I do think the only slight disagreement I'd have with what you said, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head in most of what you said, is I do think now there's a less tolerance for for this and it's not put up
0: as... But is that as the good? reason for those less tolerances is because there's more eyeballs and more social media and more clips and more cameras on these things than you would have had 20 years ago. Maybe. Um,
1: but I think you look at, you know, people are far more discerning now and, you know, um, rugby has its challenges around player welfare and they're trying to get their act together and GA is some of its challenges now around discipline and, and some of the, the application of the rules. Um, and people will vote with their feet. Like People won't go to games. People won't send their kids down to clubs. And like that's ultimately what's going to happen. Um, and unless it the GA cleans up his act here, um, it's going to run into an issue here down the line because people get hurt. A fella's going to lose his eye if he gets gouged, you know, and it's just not acceptable. Um, and we saw, you know, what happened there in that club final. As you said, you know, there was a big TV audience because of who was playing, big crowd, and it was in broad... Technicolor for everyone to see what had happened and it was niggly and it was nasty and people come away from that and people in the GA at the highest highest echelons of GA and they're, they're not happy So, but they're going to have to do something about it and Larry McCarthy has gone on the record consistently about backing referees and changing um, the culture yeah. yeah but then you've got the captain of the winning team saying I shouldn't have been sent off. Yeah, you know,
0: like, and you can see we <laughs> can see the humor in it and the Golden Clerk <laughs> style, and it is very funny. Well, but uh, but also in the serious and, and the, the, the more the serious side is more important than the the humor of a few minutes of that.
2: Yeah, and you you mean you might get one opportunity to go up the steps and lift a cup and make your winning speech, and maybe you should go bigger picture and you know look at what yeah. the day means rather yeah. than pointing out the perceived wrongs of your sending off.
1: You're trying, get, you're, you're trying to get people to be referees, you know, and fellas referee. I don't think you made too many mistakes, to be quite honest you know, it was a bit of a, he did his best at the end and it was a bit of a free-for-all and he doesn't have the benefit of VAR and, mm. you know, video refs and whatnot and he um, finally gets sent off and says, takes to National Airways I don't agree with the decision.
0: You know, anyway, I, I, I don't think it was right. 1-7 to Shamrock's, 1-4 to Dunloy in the club hurling final. Uh, the, on the Saturday panel, the, the lads yesterday from Derry, Tony Scully and Toneth um, Gilligan and De Gormley, there was kind of a general feeling like, uh, well, that happens everywhere uh, and also, uh, it's junior level, it's third tier and that. It, it might be that maybe whether, you know, the, the player is quite conditioned and they're running each other at speed and they don't have the finesse maybe that players at a senior level do and it's a bit more raw, it's a bit more, it's not as polished as, a, as as other sports that we're watching all the time and you could have this in soccer and rugby at a lower level.
1: I I, I don't agree with that. I uh, Sorry, I, I didn't hear the full context yeah, of what they yeah, said, but I, yeah. I don't agree with that, what they said there. I, I think the fellas that played by and large bar one or two elder statesmen were fit conditioned you know junior football club final you're, you're elite junior football right we're not talking about division nine you know down in the park and lads with big bellies running into each other because they can't turn <laughs> right you know we're talking about fellas who are playing into county football um, and fellas who are you know at the peak of that and a lot of them play divisional football at senior level so I don't I don't accept that I I, I think um, what you had last weekend was you know, a niggliness um, and an undercurrent of of kind of a, just a bit of nastiness that um, I think isn't just down in junior football. In fact, we saw it in the Alliance League's Division 1 last year. We saw it in the the inter-county, very elite of the inter-county, you know, where fellas were talking off the ball and there's a bit of niggle all the time and how are how are these rules gonna be gonna be applied. So um no I don't accept it was a junior football thing, um or a junior hurling thing. Yeah you see fellas, you know, you do see at that level lads miss time and stuff. Mm. Or fellas who are, you know, on the way out and they're just slow. But even that's coming to an end. I, I think what we saw last weekend was just niggliness, you know.
0: Yeah, Eamon Sweeney is really, really good on the whole thing. You know, it, it disgraces Gaelic football, the most popular game in the country, and still one of the most finest in the world, when played in the proper spirit. Um, yeah, just uh, set aside the impact of such scenes and spectators, and imagine the consequences they must have for the players involved. What does it feel to be like in games played in an atmosphere of aggression, and intimidation, replete with sneaky hits and persistent sledging? The GA being very quick to decry the adverse effects of social media abuse and even press criticism on the mental health of players, but surely physical and verbal abuse from the opposition. Takes its toll too. We got to take a break. Uh, just a text here. Five three one zero six is a big sports fan. If not really a fan of Gaelic games, it seems I've heard read this conversation a hundred times. Shouldn't see the scenes. Something needs to be done. Nothing ever changes. Behaviour is tolerated. I'd say even promoted by some of the GA. Well, I wouldn't agree with that. Uh, Where do we all belong? Uh, Where we all belong, I think, is the, the catchphrase, and it says laughable. Says Jimmy, which is uh, an interesting view on five three one zero six. And um, we maybe heard this uh, too many times, but it's uh, Shamrocks one f- seven, Dunloy one in the hurling club final at Croke Park. We'll get an update from Ashley O'Reilly after the news. Don't go away. We have Mick O'Keefe, the CEO of Tenio, and the Irish Daily Mail sports editor Orla McIlroy between two and three on the Sunday papers. Lots to look forward to. The Premier League, Man United, Arsenal, Joey Carberry and other great writing in the Sunday papers after this. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball here on News Talk. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy until 7. It is Nick O'Keefe and the sports editor of the Irish Daily Mail, Orla McElroy. You can listen across the country on News Talk. Also, watch us if you'd like to on the digital and social channels on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and on the OTB Sports app. If you'd like to text us with a comment, it's 53106 at a cost of 30 cents. We've done GA in the first um, half hour of the pay per view until 3. Uh, Football wise, Orla, uh, Joe Hodge is staying with Ireland. Um, Evan Ferguson obviously scored last night, and Joe Hodge, we'll want him to see progress because he's been playing for for Wolves on a regular basis.
2: Yeah, and there's a lovely piece with um, Paul Rowan in the Sunday Times. Opens with a nice little um, line from Paul about how... He'd just finished the interview with uh, Joe when a little text popped in on his phone from Stephen Kenny looking for him to give him a ring, so good sign for Joe. But uh, nice piece telling you a bit more about him. He's Manchester-born, Ireland-under-21 international, and he answers what he calls the Declan Rice question of, you know, do you have any split loyalties or where you're going to go? And he says, absolutely not. Um, hand in his heart, I don't have a problem saying that. I want to play for Ireland. I'm clear on that. Uh, up until I was 16, I played for both and never turned down a call-up. But when I had the choice, I picked Ireland and I wouldn't turn back on that. So it goes through sort of his career. And he, he actually, he is, Wolves are playing in Manchester today against Manchester City. And Hodge was a City fan and also a player from the age of 10. He was a Star Academy prospect until a serious leg injury followed by a stress fracture in his back and he seemed to be very unlucky with injuries and then COVID and uh, things are finally coming right for him now and uh, it's excellent timing as well that you know hopefully he'll be he'll be hoping for a call up he does say that um, eyebrows were raised when Hodge wasn't included in the last senior squad back in November but not by the player himself um, who seems a very level-headed chap he says uh, hopefully Stephen picks me if he doesn't then it doesn't change anything for me I'll keep working hard and try to get in the squad and if that doesn't work then I'll get in the squad after that so
0: Yeah, not in the squad today for Wolves, who just kicked off away to Manchester City. Um, Just go through the teams. Ederson, um, Rico Lewis, uh, Stones, uh, Akanji, Laporte, uh, Kondawan, Rodri, De Bruyne, Harland uh, leading the line with uh, Grealish and Maras on the other side. And Nathan Collins in the Wolves defence. I think, I suppose, we're quite attuned, aren't we, Mick, to every single Irish player who's doing anything at the moment, given we've been so starved of quality players for quite a while, time.
1: It does feel like there's um, more good news at the moment. Like, obviously, we've... Evan Almighty amongst other things he was called this morning um, and that's a real boost because we've struggled to score and we get a consistent Premier League star player like Evan Ferguson I think that'd be amazing I really enjoyed the Joe Hodge um, interview I didn't know much about him if I'm going to be honest um, I know he missed a penalty there recently in the, in the cup penalty shootout there against Forrest so he's playing in Premier League team he's playing you know consistently he's not playing today as you say but um, he seems to be a good player I, you, you sometimes wonder about these guys who start going around clubs but When you read between the lines here, he does seem to be a A lot of of injuries. Yeah, yeah, victim of circumstance. Though I think um, where he kind of ended up on the fringes of stuff more because of injury and bad luck rather than anything else. So if he develops into a player, I think we'll have a really good player in our hands. Hopefully,
0: I was going through the Jonathan Warcraft piece on Eric Ten Hag ahead of the United Arsenal game at the Emirates half four. Some really kind of funny uh, little nuggets in here uh, about Ten Hag's personality uh, Ten Hag is the most impressive hire his demanding ways encapsulated by two stories uh, told by Sjord Overgore, a player from his first club managed go ahead Eagles in the Netherlands uh, so Overgore was in the second 11 and went into the first stream dressing room to retrieve his boots, which had been borrowed by another player. Ten Hag yelled at him to get out, telling him, you have to deserve to come in here. Then in preseason, Ten Hag divided the squad into groups and sent them on a run with target times. The group, told to complete theirs in two minutes, did so 10 seconds quicker and expected pals to, on the back from their pals. And instead, uh, Ten Hag upbraided them. I, when I said two minutes, I meant two minutes, not 210, but not 150 either. And also on Ten Hag's first day, Carrington assembled the training ground staff in the players' meeting room and gave a three-hour presentation that laid out in clear detail the responsibilities and expectations for every role. From the first morning of United's pre-season tour, the standards set for players were clear. They'd wandered down for breakfast in Bangkok and various clothing and footwear were told that going forward, they were to wear match club gear, always trainers, never sliders. Look, with success, you get all these stories and with the results, you get all these stories. But this is why they have these leadership textbooks uh, about... Uh, managers Orla isn't it because it's about culture it's about standards it's about discipline it's about um, transparency and accountability and with Arteta and Ten Hag you're getting the sense that uh, they're both in that right sphere about doing the right thing now at the moment getting rid of prima donnas out of the club like Ronaldo and Obama Yang and that's what you're getting the sense of in the writing today.
2: Yeah, um, that's a really good piece about Ten Hag in the background of what's going on at United. Like, it's it's interesting to read all those details that he's got such an eye on, and they mention as well that United have a new, uh, he's director of, of football, isn't it, John um, Murti? Yeah, yeah, and you know he seems to be equally uh, big on the details, and it, it seems like himself and Ten Hag are working very well. It mentions how he had picked out uh Ten Hag back in you know, he'd been they'd been looking at him and he was seriously on United's radar from as far back as twenty seventeen. So it's uh it's an interesting read. Goes through, as you said, a lot of those details about how how um he wants to uh to be, you know, put in place this culture that things are going to be a bit more um uh, you know that they, they, there's. They know what's expected of them. Yeah. They know what he expects at all times, and that you know it's very clear on what he wants from them. He talks about their their scouting and how they're they're planning their transfers and they're planning them two and three years in advance. And uh, they're going to have their all their summer signings worked out very soon as well. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting read. Yeah, and the whole,
0: I suppose, Edward Ward, uh, short-term thinking. Uh, seems to be uh, you know now in the back burner and also when you compare it to Everton Martin Samuel in the same paper or the boards don't get sacked no matter how ferociously the fans chant and even if Mashiri wanted to sell who would buy a club since such turmoil right now equally while Lampard may be as good as gone who replaces him Everton's predicament calls for a firefighter but Moshiri appointed a firefighter in Sam Allardyce when the club previously had a crisis and the fans hated him
1: yeah the, the the United piece is good Like as a United fan for the first time in a long time you, you, you get the sense that things are going in the right direction but going back to what you said it's based on basics like attention to detail hard work standards culture you know all the things that you'd expect but United haven't had that you know they went for celebrity hires they went for you know very poor decisions the club you know this perspective was that it wasn't particularly well run it was beginning to fall apart at the seam. so having him come in what I like about him is um, his recruitment and the players that he's brought in and I think he's realised this are players with real quality and real substance so the likes of Martinez the likes of Casemiro they're brilliant boys now when you look back Um, ironically you look at Ten Hag after three matches this year and you know the papers calling for his head and looking out of his depth and now he's the world's greatest genius because United are on a good run I think we've got to take a balanced look at this uh, at the end of the season. The United end up top four. I think that's a remarkable achievement. Um, I don't think they're genuine title contenders right now um, unless they get a couple of players um, in. But I think top four, um, really competitive and bringing a sense of, I suppose, there's a real direction to where the club is going. Um, I would take that right now as a Man United fan.
2: Yeah, look, he's got—he's clearly got the long-term view. Do you know, yeah. he's not looking at this as a short-term no. project. They've got a long-term view. They have a future kind of mapped out, and he talked about that. You know, they talk about the the procedure, how they put Rangnick in in, in place, so that it would give them time to get this recruitment process right, to get the right person, and how they felt the Ten Hag was the right person. He kept ticking boxes the most strongly and a months-long process of multiple face-to-face meetings with candidates began, and all through that, Ten Hag was the man that seemed to be coming out uh, best for them. And, you know, they talk about... You talked about Simon Martinez, like he talks... Uh, they, they mention how United have built up this scouting machine and the research they put into players, and it turned out that both Ten Hag and United had the player, same player on, on their list, yeah. you know, when it came to look for a player in that position. That's, that's where they both agreed, and they both have they have a clear vision in mind now for the future of the club which didn't seem to happen for a long time no
0: for a decade really um, and there's interesting stuff from Jonathan Liu a great writer in The Observer just about the tactics that um, Cruyff influence pervades Arteta and Hag follow Dutch legend in their fullback fluidity talking about how Ben White has been transformed into a right back at Arsenal just quoting here, for some time Arteta has been searching for fullbacks who'd play his way, stepping up into a narrow role when Arsenal had the ball effectively mutating into centre midfielders. Afferton Hag with Luke Shaw traditionally a touchline based fullback drilled to reach the byline and deliver crosses. Shaw's role has shifted to a more defensive emphasis, but also one with greater responsibility for launching attacks through midfield. So this is the nitty gritty that you need to know um when you when you're kind of analyzing the, the ten hags and the Artetas and what's behind them. Uh, the tales of White and Shaw and Guardiola and Cruyff before them remind us that t- creating a successful team is about more than ideology or moving checkers around a whiteboard at its heart. It is a question of trust. Also, in the Observer, which is repurposed in the Sunday Independent about early in Haaland and Manchester City, obviously they're playing Wolves right now. Uh, City as a whole, halfway through the campaign, have scored 50 goals and conceded 20. Over the whole of last season, they totaled 99 and 26. The addition of Haaland... Uh, who had 20 touches against Man United last Saturday when City beat United at Old Trafford last season. No City player had fewer than 71. There's a tendency in football to overemphasise the role of the goal scorer just because a striker's prolific, just because he's obviously a great player, does not mean he's making the team better. I suppose what has been infected Pep Guardiola's thinking is the fact that they haven't won the Champions League and maybe Haaland is the answer to that.
1: Yeah, well again you know, with Haaland you know, City lose and then all of a sudden he doesn't suit the system and you know he doesn't get enough touches of the ball and then he goes out the following week and scores four goals you know, so <laughs> I don't think anybody would mind Erling Haaland in their team and again, you know uh, I think we've got to wait till the end of the season I found the the, the Jonathan Liu piece um, quite interesting as well um, albeit I think two years ago we are talking about German managers and pressing and now we're talking about everybody being the spawn love child of Johan Cruyff um, because you've Guardiola you've got um, Arteta uh, and Ten Hag and others who have some kind of you know relationship you with Guardiola mean, because yeah, Ten we Hag was like the like the, the horse you know Galileo is it where they all have yeah, come from yeah, you know yeah. the, the same gene pool I think it's probably an oversimplification um, but there's probably a bit of substance substance in that um, we can see the way they move players around To see their kind of recruitment policy their philosophy as well um, but uh, you know it's in vogue at the moment because you know Arsenal top of the league and we've three or four managers who have either Dutch or Barcelona links and they kind of it fits nicely to that theory
0: yeah rugby wise I think I suppose a lot of the thinking this week and talking and uh, we're going to have commentary of it in an hour's time Munster Toulouse is about Joey Carberry or isn't it and the fact that he was omitted from the Irish rugby squad for the Six Nations 37 man squad three out halves in it Captain Johnny Sexton Ross Byrne his understudy at Leinster who's obviously been filling in very well recently with Leinster top of the Heineken Cup standings and Jack Crowley who a bit of a bolter uh, from left field and Neil Francis has been writing about it. Bernard Jackman's got things to say about it. And, look, it's going to divide opinion to a degree because we're in a World Cup year and uh, Johnny Sexton, as important as he is, uh, does have a history of injuries, especially uh, given the age he is. He's going to be 38 in July.
2: That's it. And, you know, there's there's kind of a common theme that I was saying to Mick earlier that, like, people are pointing to back in the November internationals when... um, Carberry took that late hit and went off and uh, Crowley came on. And then in the next game, Sexton's ruled out just before the start of the match. Crowley starts, Ross Byrne comes on and he's a match-winning cameo then kicking that very important kick. And it's like that's where things have flipped. And Joey Carberry now, I mean, if you'd thought about this at the start of the season, you wouldn't have said that Joey Carberry would not be in the Ireland squad. You know, it just, it seems extraordinary from what we would have thought a few months ago, that he's now not in the Ireland squad at all. And that Ross Byrne... Points who, to a
0: ruthlessness, doesn't it, for Farrell?
2: Yeah, and, you know, certainly it's a big change and swerve this close to a World Cup with, you know, the amount of games you have between now and then. There's never really been somebody in as a Sexton, you know, nailed on number two. And that's yeah. that's kind of been an issue because, as you say he is prone to injury not that he's prone to injury but i mean he gets he gets his fair share um he he'll be out you know for a couple of matches you will he's will he play match to match in a world cup when you've got matches coming every six or seven days you know it's hard to see it so you need to have somebody who's confident to step in there And a lot of them making the point that uh, Ross Byrne has done that consistently for Leinster and he's been backed all the way along to be that guy when Johnny's not there. He doesn't play that many games for for Leinster now because of, you know, they obviously have to manage his hours and his minutes on the pitch. So Ross Byrne has consistently been backed and, you know, back as far as when uh, the move was made to bring Joey Carberry down to Munster. Um, At that point, they saw Ross Byrne as their number two. And I think the, the... the feeling is that Stuart Lancaster wanted to look at Joey Carberry as more of a fifteen, that he was more of a um, a flair, a looser player, and that that role would suit him better than the, you know, the more um, straightened thing, role that you have to fulfil as a number ten. But you know, as we know, he went down to Munster, and for a long time he was seen as the the number two. But he's never been a hundred percent. There and he's never been completely convincing. Nobody's really stepped in. I mean, you probably need three guys to fill Johnny Saxon's shoes. Really,
1: well, we've nine. We've nine months of this to come up. Um, it's a bit like Friends, isn't it, Orly? <laughs> Joey and Ross, You're
2: Ross and Joey, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> Plenty of drama.
1: No but uh, what was I was going to say That was
0: prepared <laughs> Like It was like Delia Smith stuff That was Mick <laughs> oh, How long That was her gag Exactly and, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah.
2: no, I stole I, that from I, Rory I, Keane I, Full disclosure No but I, yeah.
0: I, I think Look, um, Six degree separation it's,
1: It is There's three players That feature in the rugby news today It, it is Joey Carberry And You know There's a lot of airtime this week On your own station um, About that And um, he has gone from the kind of de facto nailed on number two, the fellow you bring in, the guy who's cover for for Johnny, particularly after of course Paddy Jackson is, is is off the off the field to play. So um, you know, he he has slipped down the pecking order and I and I think, you know, I, I think what's missing here is is Ross Byrne has gone from probably been number six or seven choice out half to now number two possibly or number three. And I think he deserves huge credit. Like he was written off They had his brother ahead of him in the pecking order at one stage who hadn't played a huge amount of rugby. Um, And he's come on by sheer perseverance. He's stuck at it. He's getting lots of game time at Leinster and he's got the benefit of playing with half the Irish team every week when Johnny's not playing, which he won't a lot of the time because he'll be rested. Um, And I think he deserves huge credit. I think on the Carberry front, um, what I'd read into it is Farrell, there's a ruthlessness there um, and he's picking fellas on form. And, you know, he's decided now that this is the team he wants. You know, you're running out of opportunities, you know, you you've got your five Six Nations games and a couple of warm up matches and that's it. So if Carby doesn't come back into the the thinking in the next couple of months and doesn't have a stellar three months at Munster, he's probably not going to make the World Cup squad. So it's really at the the, the, the you know, breakfast. It's, it's really back on, on him from a career perspective. Yeah. He's been really unlucky with injury. Hasn't his form has been in and out and probably because of confidence, Munster have been playing brilliantly at times. Um but I think the guys that he's picked in fairness to Farrell, are are there on on absolute merit, and you know he's tried Burns, he's tried you know others um, in those positions, but that's he's decided. Johnny's obviously the number one. Um, Johnny can't play every game um, because of his 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 uh, his his age and whatnot, and I think um, the Sunday into touched on as well. Like we'll have some of those games in the World Cup where you don't really want to be playing your 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 main fellas for fear they're going to get injured or or, or sent off. Um, so you know, sitting right now, if you were looking at it and you'd ask, you know, who would you like to come on with 15 minutes to go to see a game out if Johnny Sexton had to go off you'd probably say Ross Byrne right now he doesn't make too many mistakes, you'd him to kick a penalty if you well the it. kick against
0: australia showed a lot of composure you uh, in, in a pressure moment and i thought that was it was interesting yeah
1: but he was he was
2: overlooked and overlooked
1: and overlooked a lot for for ireland all
0: the
2: time he'd been doing that for leinster you know for for a few years at that point like there was a, a match a few years ago now where he was crippled or cramp yeah and still stood up and kicked a last minute penalty to you know for that was crucial for leinster like he's he's been doing that and he's been he's been a clutch player for leinster um and all of a sudden, you know, he does it, and people are going. Well, I suppose the
0: familiarity is really important. If Twenty of the thirty-seven are Leinster players, and if, if most of the pack, if most of the team is Leinster, there's a there, there are the codes. There's the intuition all of that kind of stuff Neil Francis writing today injuries in mediocre form happen less and less when you're playing off front football mm. and when you've got time and space afforded to you by a dominant pack in future when players are asked to move to improve the depth chart they might think again they might have less game time but they're playing for a winning team Carberry has 37 caps and has won in 31 of them my international record is close to the inverse of that Ireland's reserve at half has a winning record against every major rugby nation except France we only played against once Carberry's record against the Blacks has played 7-1-5. That was stand for Something when your form or your look deserts you a little bit in the Sunday Times. Well, yeah, in he, look,
1: he, he has quality, Carby. Look, the ball's in his court now. Um, if, if it's a win-win for Andy Farrell, if if Carby, you know, has a, a streak now of playing really well for five or six matches and he comes back into the squad, well, then you've got a guy back with confidence. You know, he's loads of ability. Um, nobody thinks he's not up to that level. It's just that there are fellas who are playing more consistently. Better than him um, and probably more adaptable right now. So, you know, I think it's I think it's a, a wait and see. Don't know it is Bundyaki who, who I, I don't know what's happening there. I don't. I'm not close to that situation, but it's very strange that he's not getting picked for Connacht. Um, I've no idea why that is. Whether it's some people saying it's fitness, some people saying that There's
2: he attitude. seems to have outgrown
1: his you know the club, or he's on the way out, or I I don't know. But um, that doesn't look well either. If he's one of your number one choice players as well, and he's not playing.
0: Yeah, it can be a bit in and out. Like you had him as a line, not too long ago. Yeah, yeah. so you know uh, we don't know the exact reasons, but um, it was interesting. To, anything else rugby wise to, to touch upon that you do?
2: Do say Bernard Jackman's piece was interesting. He's talking about the the musical chairs in the in the coaching staffs ahead of the World Cup and that England and Wales have taken gambles with their new coaching staffs. You know, bringing in Warren Gatland and. Um, uh, England dispensing with Eddie Jones and getting Steve Borthwick in and talking about how how that's a gamble for them that, that was an interesting um, read as well there by Bernard
1: yeah there's a similar piece in uh, I think it's the Sunday Times by Stephen Jones I could be wrong yeah uh, and he looks at uh,
2: kind of the alpha go round and the alpha
1: it? males that are that are coming in um, but uh, you know Eddie Jones going to Australia. You know, he's the kind of manager that gets a bounce. You know, he's a bit of a Davy Fitz of rugby. You know, he can he get a he get a bounce out of a team. Yeah, Gatland going into Wales, they'll get a bounce out of him as well. So, very interesting. But um, he touches on the the three alphas of of world rugby. Well, he also puts Checa in that bracket of uh, Eddie Jones, Razzie, uh, Gatland, uh, Cheka, uh as these kind of alpha males. Um, he's kind of ranking them in their alphaness. A better way of saying yeah, it. there's a
0: profile of Eddie Jones on the Sunday Business Post, which is worth a look, folks. Um, stuff like from his book and that kind of thing and his upbringing and uh, his abrasive nature towards players, which I don't know um, still fits. But obviously, he's got the Aussie job now. He's been given a, a role at World Cup in um, both this year and in 2027. So,
1: Would it uh, add some spice to the Lions Tour in
0: 25 if Eddie Jones is still there? But it add spice to the World Cup if they meet England? Big time,
1: man. Yeah. Would you bet again like Australia aren't that bad? Like like Australia lost a few games, you know, by a point here and there in that November series. Um very close. They've good players, they've always got quality and you kinda of, they're kind of a World Cup team. They don't tend to collapse in World Cups would you bet against them getting to a World Cup final
0: wouldn't bet against them wouldn't bet against any of the teams I think it's quite evenly matched I think France and New Zealand and uh, are probably the, the, yeah. the, the two that are ahead I think France are the, are the best team in the world at the moment but a home World Cup uh, has its pressures Dunloy will not go away uh, in this uh, club Hurling final it's uh, Baddy Hale one twelve Dunloy, one ten thirty eight 38 minutes into the game at uh, Croke Park. Ashley and O'Reilly's there. We'll keep you updated on I what's going John on. I saw John
1: Paul Mannion was walking across the pitch right. there. Right. You, 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 his, bit, of, you bit of hope. His, puffing his cheeks like a man who is thinking about you know, the coming five on. five minutes of the match. Yeah, uh, So we could see Paul Mannion start for Kilmock Crokes, which would be interesting.
0: Michael Foley had a very interesting piece at the back of the Sunday Times today on <clears throat> Patrick Healty's interview with Tommy Ternan on the television. We saw it last week um, talking about his, his life and uh, and just uh, Kealty's logic unlocks reasons behind sports attachment to sectarian chance and how they remain an obstacle to reconciliation between the north and the south, Orla.
2: Yeah, this was I, this was a very good read, and it is that thing we need to look at this differently because, you know, he talks to about what Patrick Kielty had to say and. Talking about the, for example, the ooh-ah the rah moment and, you know, what those songs mean. I know it's harmless, but, you know, what's funny about it is if you were asked to rejoin the Commonwealth and you saw the Northern Ireland ladies team up there singing, they were up to their necks in Fenian blood and singing the sash, you'd sit there and think to yourself, geez, I'm not sure about that. And it's about putting yourself in and looking at things from another perspective and how, you know, there's different concepts of Irishness and my concept of Irishness is not the same as somebody who's you know grown up in the north of ireland and um they that we need to recognize that um there are there are different forms of irishness he talks about the chance and sectarian chance and how uh he tells a story about how in in his former career as a uh a football, northern ireland football correspondent for the paper that this is Mick Foley, that he was um on the road with Northern Ireland, and uh, was was um, talking to one of the supporters who discovered he was from Cork. Told him all the lovely tales about how he enjoyed going to Cork supporting Linfield. And then when they got on the plane, that there was uh, a song started up. It was the first few bars of the Billy Boys. I was uh, up to my knees and in Fenian blood at about row H when my new friend piped up behind me, "Hi, shut up! That boy's from Cork." and the silence that followed and you know how awkward he felt about the whole scenario and what it was like for him to be on the opposite side of what we were all discussing only a couple of weeks ago so it was an interesting read and it is you know Patrick Hilty it seems was quite you know measured on the whole thing and it's it's interesting to see that different perspective
1: Yeah and he's a couple of good lines here Um, for my sins I actually studied the use of symbols flags and language in, in Northern Ireland in sport <laughs> so <laughs> but it's quite an interesting quite an interesting topic and, and I think um, Kilty talks about um, you know things like a united Ireland and, and and how language is important but also I think he used a line I haven't quite found it here around you know if you want to invite someone into your house you know you change get, the furniture yeah you move stuff around and you make someone feel comfortable and um, I think the conversation we're having now at the moment as a country it's the wrong conversation we're talking about a united Ireland whereas really we should be talking about a shared island and respecting right, Or a new Ireland Or a new Ireland exactly and what would you do if you started from scratch and you know Mary Lou was in trouble during the week I heard she was calling she calls um, northern, the, the north of Ireland you know and there's a deliberate use of language Is that not just semantics though? Possibly but I, 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 I think it's important when we talk about where we've come from um, particularly the last 50 years on, on this island and and I think we need to be very careful um, in this jurisdiction around um, the debates that we're having and the language that we're using because we really should be talking about things like a one island economy, how we make, you know, one island approach to energy, you know, and, and less about kind of, you know, this kind of triumphalism of a united Ireland, which in my view, that language is the wrong kind of language to be starting that conversation with if we're going to bring one and a half million of a population um uh, on a journey, and I, I think you're you're right. O- unfortunately, with Brexit, um, with the EU, it was kind of you could have gone to a place where it was a bit more borderless, and you could have had a situation where things just happened um, that made people work together more more closely. Um, Twenty five years of since the Good Friday Agreement on April seventeenth, I think this year, um, and brings all this stuff back into focus. But I I I do feel things like language, anthems. You know, the Northern Irish Soccer team um still stand for God Save the Queen. Um the uh, the Irish rugby team at home still play our on the vein. You know, um the use of of, of, of uh symbols and, and flags and all that kind of stuff I think needs to be reviewed. Um if we're gonna take the kind of a twenty year view on this and how to bring people north and south of the border or closer together, I personally couldn't care what that looks like. Once you had peace and people working more closely together for the benefit of everybody on the island,
0: yeah, I think the chanting. I think if you're 25 and under, I don't think. I think the Troubles is a complete abstraction. I think if you're over that age, um, you might have a completely different view on what it means the Troubles, whether you're affected directly or indirectly, uh, north or south of the border. Um, don't know, you know, Yeah, at, no, I, 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 I don't and, disagree and, with you, and, but and, I, and, I, and, th- and th- therefore you can understand why the chant for maybe the, the the women's team didn't mean as much as maybe it might have if they'd met it 30 years ago
1: yeah i i i, I don't I, I i think the girls didn't mean to be offensive right but i still think um it was deeply offensive and i i think that you can you can be on both sides of that fence you know um if uh, a team um in the north or in Scotland or somewhere was singing um, sectarian songs uh, and that that lauded uh, paramilitary organisations. I think a lot of people here would be offended. Now, whether they're under the age of 20 or 25, um, I think you might give them a pass because I don't think they really understood
0: but it's I also Celtic saying. Symphony and you can go into that as well. And, and Celtic Symphony
1: on. but it was also in Glasgow as well. Like there's a whole layer of stuff yeah. here going on. Um, I, I do think the FAI handled it really well. I think Vera Pau come out and apologise. I think that particular issue I think has been put to bed for a better way of saying it. I, I still feel um, people here mix up traditional music and Irishness with and there is this kind of stuff gets thrown in. You know, like when people sing The Fields of Athenry in pubs all over Ireland. There's a, there's, it's thrown into that song that could be, yeah, but that's
0: because it's an abstraction. Because it, 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 there's not a connection between maybe what that that was or what that is and now, because it's too long ago. Uh, possibly,
1: and people don't maybe understand of a certain generation what that means. It still doesn't mean that it's not offensive
0: to uh, certain to certain people.
1: To certain people, mm. yeah, and and I think possibly that's where the education comes in. Where you know, it isn't cool to 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 laud. Um, Terrorist organizations, whatever way you want to frame that, um, and I think we got to be upfront about that. And you know, does that damage talk of a shared island? Yeah, probably does. Um, but I don't think singing a song is doing that. Um, I, I, I I'm, I'm trying to, d- to extract the kind of the one particular instance where I, I do feel there's an innocence sometimes and and whatever to to that stuff. Um, but I do feel when it happens a lot. Um, you know, I I think that might make people uncomfortable, and this kind of you know uh, psychology that you're, they're all rabid Republicans under it all um, doesn't help. I don't think. What do you think?
2: I I kind of agree with Mick. I think you know. Th- Mick Mick Foley makes a point, integration is never a question of wiping out songs or aspects of any culture that makes others uncomfortable. But it does require people to ask how these songs sound to others. And I think that's the key point. I mean, if you're thinking about, if you're talking about maybe a shared island or, you know, a future for how this island would look, you know, you kind of have to, you can't just say, well, the past is too long ago. You have to educate yourself on that past, but from other points of view as well. And not just from the point of view of how people in this part this jurisdiction would have you know would remember that history you have to remember that the history on other sides and there's you know there's more than two sides probably to to this debate that there's I I do think I, ca- I can understand why that song could be offensive to somebody and I don't think it's a big stretch to just leave it out here after, after match sing song you know go back to stick with Taylor Swift I think they all look like they were enjoying that you know yeah, but
1: I think but there, but there is like this thing where you know it gets mixed up in it's an Irish kind of traditional song you know it's like the Wild Rover or something you know it's it's actually not you know um, and I think we need to if we're going to talk about how can you expect a, a nationalist from the bog side to stand in Windsor Park and listen to God Save the Queen and hear chants from the from the terrorists um, and then on the other side not, not look at ourselves and look at the language we use and look at the songs we sing um, and maybe think well maybe we are uh, we do need to have a look at it and reflect on it and maybe be conscious of how they sound to others we also have uh, sorry I'm not sounding all you know wokish on this now but I just I, I, I do think it is What's well, your opinion now we're we'll yeah. listening to your opinion <laughs> thanks John
0: <laughs> uh, also McFoley, money talks with the selling alcohol during matches a positive move why can't they just close the Aviva stadium bar at half time is it money?
2: It's definitely money. I mean, he talks about how much the food and drink sales have, have generated over the Autumn Internationals. And, you know, we all know that, like, the the senior men's rugby team is the big driver of funds, be that ticket sales, or obviously they have a decent deal going in the Aviva with all the sales of food. But it's the for me, it's the bringing it back to your seat constantly. You know, people popping in and out.
0: Do we need to have a... Uh ask the question I suppose and it's a question I do think needs to be asked like the money is important the revenue is important all that kind of thing but it is disturbing people's match day experience not the worse of somebody walking past you yeah. when the game starts and when you focus on the match the match is sacred it's sacrosanct and people are walking past you because they've broken the seal and uh, they yeah. can't stop going mm. to the toilet yeah,
1: yeah and, I, and I think look there, there, look, there is and why,
0: why don't you like at Tottenham Hotspur for example they've got the uh, stadium open much longer yeah. after the game Yeah, maybe they can. that's the way they can recoup but the there's revenue no,
1: there's no culture in Ireland of going to the ground early and it, look, there's not a culture of staying late. People go to the pub, they run to the match, they get to their seat. The Irish Few deliberately went and spoke to fans, to be fair to them, because there was all this noise around and there was letters to the Irish Times and everything else. Um, and yes, it is disturbing when you go to a game and it is interfering with match day experience and that was coming out pretty clear. But when they asked people, would you like no drink or drink? 70% still said they want drink. So there's a journey to go on. I do think what we're seeing now is the start of a process where um, we will see it been tightened up um, I think the RFU came out and said while they will sell drink they'll try and police it in a way that you only go out when there's a break and play right if if it was me I think longer term um, and it was one of the only kind of things Infantino said that I agreed with like do you really need do you have to have a drink you know um, I, I would think there's nothing wrong with bringing a drink to your seat <clears throat> and having your drink um, I don't think you need to be up and down three times to the bar so maybe you do what Spurs do what well, Spurs are a bit more militant about it but you you know close the bar five minutes into the game open it up five minutes before half time close it down again five minutes into the second half you sit there with your drink you know you're not going to die if you don't get a point. Mm. you know um, the, 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 one of the issues with rugby is um, there's a huge amount of it's a big day out there are a lot of day trippers. There's a big corporate audience too.
2: huge corporate audience and yeah. that's part of it.
1: And and, and there's a hardcore rugby audience too that want to go and watch the game. But there are people there who are there because it's an occasion. Um, Ireland, England, Ireland, France will be occasions. And people go along and they want to have a pint. I've no issue with that. I've no issue with people having a pint. I do have an issue. Um, and I think longer term this will probably wash through um, of uh jumping up and down every you know ten minutes to to get your point because you know god forbid you mightn't have six points in the first half. Um I think you can
0: have your point, wait till half time, have another point and come back. We gotta take a break with uh Orla McElroy and and McAfee on the Sunday Paper review. Um just uh you had a solution, did you Orla McEroy to drink at Grants?
2: I think, yeah, we go the Croke Park route and just, uh, you're allowed to go out to the bar, have your drink and keep it out there. You're not allowed to bring it back to your seat. Okay. It works very well in Croke Park.
0: Yeah. Um, Baby Steps, an article in your paper about um, pregnancy and sport and uh, attitudes and changing attitudes and uh, pretty stories that are really not great to be reading and, and hearing, because we we'd won on Off the Ball actually here recently on the Koi Geek Pod. Uh, so, What's 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 the kind of the lie of the land that Mark Gallagher is investigating here?
2: Yeah, he's talking about the the case was um, finalized this week of Sarah Bjork Gunnar's daughter of Iceland. She uh, took a case against Olympic DNA for maternity pay. She wasn't getting paid, and um, she took the case because she when she became pregnant, they just stopped paying her. And she uh, last week she became the first player to win a claim through FIFA's maternity regulations with Leon ordered to pay the 82,000 in wages which was withheld from her while she was expecting and she's since moved clubs. Um, and it just goes, you know, looks at the whole issue of this in in women's sport and how big an issue it is for women. Uh, he, you know, he mentions people like uh, Serena Williams and Alison Felix, who had, you know, quite um, high profile pregnancies during their careers and what it's done afterwards. He talks to a, um, a physiotherapist who specialises in the area of getting women back to sport after after. Um, maternity leave and That's how Helen it is yeah. yeah. She
0: was on the show, she's been on the Saturday panel recently.
2: And it's very interesting and she talks about how the you know the research is relatively new in this area and that there's no kind of clear and defined way of or path or what's the best route of getting a woman back in action after after um having had a baby like you see Serena Williams did um make it back and uh, Alison Felix has too and how she's you know um prospered since but there's a study where it um Mark discusses from Medicine and Science and Sport Journal, where they talk about the performance levels of 42 elite runners before and after pregnancy, and have found that athletes who returned to high level competition were back to a similar level of performance within three years. But a more fascinating finding was that 46% of those athletes actually improved their performances post pregnancy.
0: Olive Lachnan was one of them, I remember speaking about it.
2: Yeah and uh, the, the, he goes on to say about he talks to Sunita Pushpoor, who's a mother of two um, and an Olympian and she is on the Olympic Federation's Athletes Commission and she talks about how Sport Ireland have put in place a maternity policy and a lot of the issue I think is that there aren't defined <coughs> med, uh, maternity policies for players so they don't really know what to expect when they become pregnant. That interview on the Koi Gig pod I know um, with Emma uh, McCandy formerly Mitchell of Scotland she talked about how um, difficult it was for her. Players talk about how they you know, they disguise pregnancy they they pretend fake injuries and things like this because they don't want to tell their club straight away or immediately um, and it's a struggle because they also you know, the other issue is, is is highlighted in one of the quotes here athletes shouldn't have to wait until they are 35 or 40 to start a family so you don't want to wait until after your career if you're having a top level career at the highest level in sport do you wait until the end of that and say well you know I, I'll put it off till then and then that brings its own issues in in uh, fertility and the likelihood of, of having children or how many children you can have at that point. So it's just interesting, you know, Sarah Bjork-Gunner's daughter wrote this piece for the Players' Tribune uh, about what happened and how she was treated when she became pregnant and she's back in action now, she's playing for um, Juventus.
0: I think one of the positives out of this, Orla, is that organisations will get exposed for shoddy behaviour by whistleblowing.
2: That's it. And uh, Mark talks about how Leon were, you know, they, they're perceived to be um, such a, a, you know... A well, the
0: Serial Champions League winners, top club.
2: This is it. And, they're, you know, they've been leading the way in, in women's football. Um, and uh, yet, when it came to this situation, they just didn't have a decent way of dealing with it, you know. They couldn't deal with it.
0: Nine All-Ireland club hurling titles for Ballyhale Shamrocks. They have just beaten Dunloy 122-115 to at Croke Park. And they're back at the top, the Kilkenny side. And Dunloy really gave it their all. But Baddy Hale, TJ Reid, they're celebrating on the pitch at Croke Park. They're champions once again. And uh, what an amazing club they are. Amazing club.
1: Yeah, fair play to Dunloy, though. I, you know, it, it didn't quite go to script that you might have felt Ballyhal pulled away in you know a few goals. No, it was know, competitive it was contest, very competitive. I think that score, you know, three late points in injury yes. time, puts a bit of a shine on it for Ballyhal. Dunloy were excellent. I know they won't, you know, faint praise and all that. Um, I think they were worthy all Ireland finalists and probably pushed Ballyhal as close as anybody this year.
0: We got Glenn and Kilmaico throwing in at half past three. Uh, one of the Dunloy players there in tears just. So I suppose all that effort, all that effort, and it's just come to an end and on a losing t- side like it's the fifth time done Live lost a, a club hurling final and that's tough. You it's know?
2: the most of any club, yeah, isn't it? It's tough. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard.
0: Tough. Okay. Um it, that it's a really good
1: article that um sorry, just to go back to yes, that, the, uh, um, the maternity piece. I think <clears throat> there's a few things in it. one is kinda of relatively taboo topics I think around female sport are now been openly um discussed.
0: Like the, uh, even like the things like the shorts recently. The shorts. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and maternity policies and, and, and that kind of thing. And I think that's great. And I think they're getting due consideration. Um, one of the reasons I think, um, and I think the nail is, uh, again, um, they talk here about the uh, the sports are kind of catching up with the growth. So like women's professional sport is still relatively new compared to men's. It's the case that sports are still learning and acquiring knowledge in the area. So it's almost like the guidelines and the the thinking around these topics are only catching up with the growth of women's sports. So that's a good thing. Um, and just to kind of add to your point around, been called out by whistleblowers, I think a lot of the sports and sports clubs, we talked about Man United earlier, been very slow. And other clubs, Rovers in Ireland here, are slow to get women's teams together. It's now become, you know, commercial suicide not to have uh, a vibrant, dynamic women's section or women's team. Um, and it, it's now as much the right thing to do as it is. It's commercially absolutely the right thing to do as well. Not that that's the reason you should do it, but mm. you won't get the deals. You won't um, grow as a club if you don't have uh, a strategy and a proper thought put into put into women's sport and, and, and growing women's sport, um, and I think we're getting to a time, not too far away, where, you know, you saw the Wales. I think the Wales soccer team. I think came out during the week around pay equality for the men. Now it's easy when it's it's appearance money, right? It's not salary, but um, we're not that far away from um, pay equality conversation. I think in women's sport, I think we're within this next decade, we could get to a place where. Mm. Well, the Ireland international
2: people. team, yeah. like they, they, you know, they, when they got the uh, equality of payment for international, like they, they, one of the things they pointed to was Seamus Coleman, and the lads took a cut to ensure parity could be reached, which is, you know, that and that's what it needs. It needs, you know, men stepping up to help um, push equality. It's not just women's voices pushing it. But one of the things I would say that kind of, you know, comes to mind for me from reading a piece like that from Marx or what you were talking about with the shorts and how, you know, it's all these things are, are helping And make life easier for women in sport. You need more women in the room when it comes to making decisions. So if you have women in the room who are in the, you know, the administrative side or in the higher positions in the club or the associations That's when you will have women being thought of in a much more organic way so that, you know, maybe it'll become obvious to them that they need to have maternity policies. Because if you're going to have a women's team, you're going to have to, you know, cross that bridge at some stage where a player will decide that, you know, they're going to start a family during their career. So you need to have a policy and clear thought process in place. And if you have women helping make those decisions, it's like, you know, the, the shorts, for example, a woman setting up a football team would never start off with white shorts. Do you know, so you you will always have um, thoughts that just don't occur if the women aren't in the room and aren't in the conversation, which is why it's important that the likes of the FAI and the IRFU and all these boards who are being told they need to get forty percent um, representation yep. on their boards is a good reason for the gender equality. We have
0: got to wrap up um, just briefly.
1: No, I, I was only just to say that I I think sport follows or sometimes can lead corporate and wider society we've, we've a, a, a sitting minister now who's on maternity leave Um, and things it's never happened before and the, the key point in this article I think is around women being afraid to let people down whether they worked as partners in law firms afraid to have babies or. but if you're a woman and you want to have a baby and you're a professional athlete you should be allowed to have a baby and you mm-hmm. shouldn't be penalised in your career or, or financially for doing yeah. so and thankfully we're getting to that place where that's not going to be the case
2: Yeah,
0: we're, good to we're running out of time here um, just um just to maybe point people to one article to, to have a look at uh, we haven't got the time to uh, the our Sun like a really nice piece Jason Byrne It started up as a pee-up uh, weekend and has gone from strength to strength Corkman's Cambodia journey becomes a bid to get Corge a trip to Derry so Khorja uh, Kiamer as in Cambodia they were formed in 2017 a J club by a group of players from Tyrone and Cork the clubs gone from strength to strength with Cambodian natives now making up at least 85% of the playing ranks the club has been invited to represent Asian both men's and women's football in the non-Irish category at the J G-A World Games in Derry's Own Beg so they're hoping to get the team there and hoping to get the financial support to get the men's and women's teams anything briefly very briefly in the last 30 seconds to point somebody to? Uh,
2: Philip Quinn has a nice interview in, in the mail with um, Brian Carey who is uh, Director of Football Recruitment with Reading, who are going to Man United in the FA Cup next weekend.
0: Mick, very briefly. Yeah, same one. Uh,
2: same one. <laughs> Sorry, okay. yeah,
0: Look, the best of luck with Kilmer Kud. Thank you, yeah,
2: I'm on the bike. And,
0: uh, you know, uh, hope the nerves aren't too bad. And thank you so much, Mick O'Keefe, Orla McElroy, for coming in on the Sunday paper review. Thanks, Enjoy sir. the rest of your day, we'll Stay chat done. soon. France <laughs> win the first game against New Zealand. I think that sets the tone. I think they're the best team in the world. I'm going to go
1: Ireland. I'm going to get off the fence once and for all. This is our best chance.
2: Subscribe to the rugby stream on the
0: OTB Sports app now.